Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Retroist. I was a little on the young side when A Nightmare on Elm Street came to theaters, but that did not stop me from making an effort to go see it. The first time I went, I was completely rebuffed, too young. The second time I went, the people who were working at the theater were not quite as vigilant, and I got in to see it. That night, I really wish they had been more vigilant, because Freddy and the whole Nightmare on Elm Street thing scared me to death at the time. I went home, tried to go to sleep, and kept thinking, Freddy's gonna kill me. From that point on, I had a unnatural fear of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and I avoided them like the plague. I avoided the sequels, I avoided talking about it. Whenever there was a special that had something related to Freddy, I avoided it. Then in 1988, I was watching a local station, Channel 11, and a new show came on called Freddy's Nightmares. Now I was a big fan of late night television, and I figured this would be a good opportunity to try to reconnect with a very popular franchise. And I was glad I did. The show wasn't awesome, but it was a lot of fun, and it instantly dispelled the initial trauma of seeing that first movie, and made me think, well, I should really rewatch it, and I did. Then I had a complete Freddy sauce. I went and bought the movie. I got to watch all the other Nightmare on Elm Street movies that I had missed in the meantime. The next year when The Dream Child came out, I was one of the first people online to see it, and I've been a big Nightmare on Elm Street fan ever since. I hear from a lot of people who talk about movies from their childhood and completely dismiss them now as an adult. And that's just not horror. Sometimes it's comedy, drama, things that just bothered them. And I try to convince them that maybe it's time that they revisit those things. Because as you get older, of course, you get a new perspective on life. And things that might have seemed frightening or not funny at the time can be seen in a whole new light with just the passing of a couple of years. On today's show, we're going to talk about that classic that I rediscovered, A Nightmare on Elm Street. We'll talk about the concept behind it, talk about its director, some of its stars, its many sequels and incarnations, and of course we'll discuss the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street, whose trailer started running in theaters just last week. We have an information-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. A Nightmare on Elm Street comes from the mind and pen of the American film director and writer Wesley Earl Craven, commonly known as Wes Craven. A little bit about Wes Craven. He was born in Cleveland, Ohio. He was the son of Caroline and Paul Craven, and he had a strict Baptist upbringing. He earned an undergraduate in English and psychology from Wheaton College in Illinois and a master's degree in philosophy and writing from Johns Hopkins University. Before A Nightmare on Elm Street, Craven had directed several other films that have their own fan bases even today. He had done The Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, and Swamp Thing. And despite the fact that since A Nightmare on Elm Street, he's directed some great films like The People Under the Stairs and The Scream Trilogy, it is probably the creation of Freddy Krueger and A Nightmare on Elm Street that he will always be most famous for. Craven had done 
lots of writing and was trying to come up with a concept for a brand new horror film and had read these articles in the LA Times about a group of Cambodian refugees and their children who after fleeing to America from the Khmer Rouge were suffering these really horrible nightmares and they refused to sleep these nightmares were so horrible so the parents would bring their kids to a doctor who said well these kids need to sleep and soon after they got this advice the children began dying in their sleep now this was loosely covered in the news back then and it was referred to as asian death syndrome craven had read these articles and found them really interesting but also found it more interesting that the paper never seemed to correlate them and come up with the bigger picture so craven took that idea and decided to turn it into a film about kids who can't go to sleep or someone will kill them in their sleep the idea of having kruger be this child murderer who comes back from the dead to attack all these children seems like a natural fit but originally craven thought that Kruger should be a child molester. However, at the time in California, there was a large amount of highly publicized child molestation cases, and Craven didn't want to seem like he was trying to piggyback and exploit the pain of the people who were going through these trials. Now, where did Craven come up with the idea for Freddy Krueger himself? Well, it just wasn't the articles that inspired him. He has cited many sources including his delving into Eastern religions, the fear he had as a youth when he had spotted an old man from his window who scared him. It was probably all these things put together. There's so many conflicting stories from Craven himself that we'll probably never be able to nail it down until he gets his story straight. But there is one thing that we know for sure, how Freddy got his name. The name comes directly from Craven's youth when a bully named Freddy Krueger would terrorize him. Actually, in the movie The Last House on the Left, there is a character whose name was inspired by Freddy Krueger, but his name was shortened to just Krug. Another thing that we could be certain about is Freddy's sweater. Freddy's sweater came straight from that homeless man who Craven had seen from his window. And can you guess what the colors of that sweater the homeless man was wearing were? It was red and green. He decided to pick that sweater color for Freddy when he also read Another story that said that the two most difficult colors for the human brain to process in tandem are red and green. Which is odd, since Christmas seems so easy on the eyes. Craven began writing the movie in 1981, after he had finished production on the movie Swamp Thing. He started pitching the idea to several studios, but all of them rejected him. Initially, one studio decided to take extra meetings with him, and that was Walt Disney Productions. But they wanted Craven to tone down the content of the movie to make it more suitable for preteens and children. Luckily, Craven declined that offer and moved on. After that, another studio approached them, Paramount. But they were working on a movie that had some similarities called Dreamscape and decided to pass on the project once they realized that. Finally, a small company called New Line Cinema which at that point was just a company that distributed films to college campuses rather than make their own, approached Craven about producing the movie. This would be their first movie that they would be making. Craven and them shook hands, and they started making the movie. That, of course, was a calculated risk. Craven was having problems finding somebody, but going with New Line was dangerous because he didn't know where their money was coming from. In fact, during the making of the movie, New Line's distribution deal for the movie fell through, and for two weeks it was unable to pay anyone on the movie any money. Interestingly enough, no one in the cast and crew quit. 
maybe they all realized they were onto something good. The Nightmare on Elm Street movie is so important to the company's history that internally and even externally, they're often referred to as the house that Freddy built. That is not a house I'd want to live in. Not at all. Once again, foolish friends, Freddy Krueger is on your phone. Dial this number now. I've got some tales to tell. Freddy's favorite bedtime stories. <laughs> Deadtime stories. All brand new and straight from my boiler room to your home. It's Freddy Krueger on your phone. So dial this number now if you dare. Tell him Freddy sent you. Two dollars the first minute, 45 cents each additional minute. Children, get your parents' permission before you dial. The movie had an excellent cast, starting with Freddy Krueger himself, Robert Englund. Englund had appeared in a bunch of smaller pictures, but then got a role in the V miniseries the year before. But Englund was not the first choice to play Freddy. Because of the big physical drain on the character, and because they thought it would be a very silent monster, they had initially wanted to have a stuntman play the role, which would have been cheaper. But they sent a copy of the script to Englund, and he read it, loved it, and agreed to star. Freddy's nemesis in the movie, Nancy Thompson, was played by a unknown at the time, Heather Langenkamp. Craven wanted someone who was very non-Hollywood for the role, and when he saw Langenkamp, he thought that she definitely had that quality. Langenkamp had actually been working in the newspaper biz before jumping into acting after going out on an audition for The Outsiders. She auditioned for the role of Nancy against 200 actresses, Amongst those who auditioned for the role but didn't get it were Jennifer Grey, Demi Moore, Tracy Gold, and Courtney Cox. This would be the first major motion picture that starred Hollywood megastar Johnny Depp. Depp actually had gone to the audition with his friend who was hoping to get the role. And oddly enough, that actor was Jackie Earl Haley, who is now playing Freddy Krueger in the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Nancy's best friend was played by Amanda Weiss. Tina's boyfriend, Rod Lane, was played by Nick Corey. Lieutenant Dan Thompson was played by probably at the time the most well-known actor in the movie, John Saxon. And Marge Thompson, who was Nancy's mother, was played by Ronnie Blakely. Craven had an idea in his mind when he came up with Freddy Krueger, and he wanted it to be very gruesome. He wanted teeth showing through the flesh, pus running from sores. Luckily, the makeup artist on the film, David B. Miller, argued that an actor couldn't be convincingly made up with that amount of makeup and still get any sort of facial movement, and that a puppet would be out of the question because it would be hard to fool audiences into thinking that that was the face of the actor. So those ideas were abandoned, and David B. Miller was given some free reign to make some decisions on how to make Kruger's face. And he gave him the ability to be very expressive, which humanized Freddy and made him all the more frightening. The movie was filmed on location in Los Angeles for a budget of $1.8 million, and it was a rushed movie. They started filming at the beginning of 1984 for a release before the end of that year, and they were able to do it. Now a little bit about the plot of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Obviously, if you haven't seen the movie, you might want to pause the podcast. Teenager Tina Gray has this nightmare where she is being stalked through a dark boiler room by a figure with razor-sharp knives attached to his right hand. Just as he catches her, she wakes up screaming. And when she does, she realizes that there are cuts in her nightgown that are identical to the cuts she received in her dream. The next day, she finds out that her best friend, Nancy Thompson, had a very similar dream. That night, 
Tina, Nancy, and Nancy's boyfriend, Glenn, have a sleepover to make Tina feel better. Tina's rebellious boyfriend shows up and goes to bed with Tina in her mother's room. Tina has another nightmare, but this time the killer catches her and murders her. Her boyfriend, Rod, wakes up to find Tina dead. Of course, Rod, being the only one at the room at the time of the murder, is suspected of the killing and is arrested. Nancy then has more nightmares and is stalked by the same killer. These nightmares cause her to talk to Rod, and he tells her what he saw in Tina's bedroom. Nancy starts to believe that the figure appearing in her dreams is the person who killed Tina. Nancy and Glenn go to the police station to talk to Rod, only to find out that he's been killed. And of course, that death is ruled a suicide, although the mysterious killer was behind it. Nancy's mom takes her to a clinic to ensure she gets some sleep. But there, she has more nightmares, and this time her arm is cut. She also realizes at this point that not only can she get hurt in that world, but that she can bring things out of it because she has the killer's hat. Nancy's mom tells her that the hat belonged to a killer whose name was Fred Krueger, who was a child murderer who had killed 20 children in the neighborhood a decade earlier. The parents had gone on a rampage and burned Freddy to death. But her mom says, you don't have to worry about that because he's dead and I know it because I have his glove. She then pulls the glove out of this hiding place where she had kept it as some sort of trophy. So Nancy devises a plan to catch Freddy and pull him out of her dreams. Of course, Glenn is not the most dependable person in the world and falls asleep when he was supposed to stay up. He is then killed in a very gruesome and awesome way. As he is pulled into his bed, a fountain of blood erupts from it. And it's just not a normal fountain. It's the old faithful of blood geysers just shooting up into the sky. And there's actually a lot of cool information about how this movie is filmed, and in particular how they did that blood effect. They did that by building a set that could be turned upside down, and they had the liquid actually on the ceiling, and obviously the camera inverted so that it appeared normal. And then they just drop a ton of water out from the ceiling onto the floor, and it appeared to be shooting up. So Nancy, of course, is now alone. She pulls Freddy out into this world. Nancy then faces off against Freddy Krueger, and she basically depowers him by saying that he doesn't exist. This being an 80s horror film, there's a twist ending. The next morning, we see Nancy getting into a car with all her friends as if this whole thing had been a dream. But as she's about to pull away, we realize that Krueger is the car and that perhaps the whole thing had been a dream within a dream within a dream. Crazy. Craven originally had no intention to make this a movie that would spawn many, many sequels. So he had thought that it would be really interesting to just have the idea that she doesn't fear him or believe in him anymore kill Freddy. But New Line thought that perhaps they were onto something good and they insisted on more of a twist ending. They actually filmed both endings and decided to go with the twist ending that we see today. There was other things cut from the movie that have shown up in special edition versions of the movie. Probably the most interesting is that we find out that the kids that we know actually had siblings who were all killed by Freddy. So we wonder what the thing they had in common was, and for some reason they decided to omit that in the final version of the movie. Not that that takes away from the movie, but it doesn't personalize the parents' vendetta the way it would if we knew that Freddy had actually taken their children. On the surface, Nightmare on Elm Street would appear to be a pretty straight-up horror film, but there's interesting themes and subtexts to the film that have been discussed by film critics and fans alike. One of the more interesting aspects is the idea of A Nightmare on Elm Street as a metaphor for the American suburb. 
I say this because the movie takes place in a very idealized American suburb. As the camera pans across the street, you see the white picket fences and all the things that are supposed to make us happy as Americans growing up. But there's always been an argument that raising kids in these suburbs protects them from the horror of things that might be outside it, but it doesn't steal them to those realities. So despite the best efforts of those parents, and in the movie we see the parents directly defeating a great evil by getting rid of Freddy, the kids are still not safe. Freddy still reaches them in a place that their parents have no power. And at one point in the movie, Nancy's mother actually apologizes to her and says that she shouldn't have denied the knowledge of Freddy's existence to them, and that her daughter obviously needs to know about that darker part of life. And there's a lot more there. You could read lots of different articles written about Nightmare on Elm Street. The blurring of the lines between dream and reality, and the struggles of kids trying to become adults, all of that can be read into A Nightmare on Elm Street, which makes it a much more interesting film than your average run-of-the-mill horror film. The terror begins when you close your eyes to reality and enter a nightmare on Elm Street. Tomorrow night at 8 on WXXA. The movie was rushed through editing and made its deadline and was released on November 9th, 1984. Critically, the movie was a success, which really helped the film out because it didn't have a huge budget for advertising at the time. So it relied mostly on word of mouth. It opened in 165 theaters in the United States on November 9th and grossed $1.2 million its opening weekend. It would then grow from there and earn a total of $25 million at the box office before being released worldwide in Europe, China, Canada, and Australia. In early 1985, the movie would hit the home video market and it was there that sales and rentals took off and the film would achieve a very rare status of cult classic. The movie would eventually spawn many sequels. A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, 3, 4, 5, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and Freddy vs. Jason. All those movies did pretty decently at the box office, and worldwide the Nightmare on Elm Street movies have taken in close to $340 million dollars. Which, of course, leads us to now. And sadly, although Wes Craven is not involved, Michael Bay is rebooting the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise with Jackie Earl Haley set to portray Freddy Krueger. That movie should be released on April 30th, 2010. Already, the trailer hit the web and is being shown in movie theaters now. But it doesn't end there. Freddy has made the jump to the small screen on a TV show called Freddy's Nightmares, which was an anthology series, sort of like a Twilight Zone that's hosted by Freddy. Now, the TV show doesn't actually portray Freddy stories, but in the pilot episode called No More Mr. Nice Guy, you actually get to see the events of Freddy's trial and his subsequent death at the hands of the parents after his acquittal. Which is interesting, because in the TV show, he gets off on a technicality due to the fact that he wasn't properly Mirandized. But in the movie, he's acquitted because someone forgot to sign a search warrant. The series ran for two seasons and had 44 episodes. It ended its run at the beginning of the 90s on March 10th, 1990. Freddy has been made into a video game. There was an NES title in 1989. There was also another game produced for the... Commodore 64 and IBM PC, which was made by Monarch Software, 
And that game differed greatly from the NES game in that it had role-playing elements. In it, you play as one of the characters from the movie who has to defeat Freddy. If you play it, it sort of has a viewpoint that's similar to Gauntlet. Freddy has also appeared in print in various novelizations of each film and in several comic book series. Most recently, I've been reading the Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash comics. And if you're a fan of Friday the 13th, The Nightmare on Elm Street, and Evil Dead, it is a perfect combination comic book. Kind of silly, but always fun. Freddy Krueger and the Nightmare on Elm Street characters, much like Jason and Michael Myers, have become iconic. Now a lot of people are railing against the fact that they're being remade, and sometimes I lament that. But I know that these are characters that have proven that they have wide appeal, and sometimes it's difficult to convince younger viewers to watch an older movie. And because the films were made in the 80s, they can seem a little bit dated. So I'm looking forward to the new Nightmare on Elm Street movies. The makeup might look a little odd, and this is maybe not my Freddy, but I'm looking forward to seeing how the movie gets reinterpreted and seeing if it captures that old magic. The good thing about remakes is that even if you don't like it, you still have the original. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist and facebook.com slash retroist. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.